0: You're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, people are, uh, they're suckers for a good love story. Some of you think you're not, but you probably actually are. And some of our favorite tropes involve, in movies and in books, our favorite tropes involve things like people leaving their priorities or their jobs or, or the places that they live or, or big commitments in order to go after the one that they love, right? And so we've all seen a movie that involves some sort of like cross-country drive in order for one romantic to, to meet the other romantic or, or a character making a, a last-minute decision not to get on that plane, right, to be with the, the one that they love. Or movies where the main character has a partner, but this partner is pretty nasty, right? They they don't really appreciate the main character. They're not very loving, but they've just kind of become comfortable in this relationship until the main character meets someone who's delightful and pure and lovely in every way. And then the movie ends happily when the main character leaves this this lover who did not actually love them for one who is better and makes them better and, and satisfies them. And we, we love these kinds of stories. The box offices will prove that we love these kinds of stories. And, and I think we love them because we know in our hearts that there's something good and true and brave in risking and sacrificing and making even extreme decisions for the sake of love and fulfillment. And, and, and maybe you're not into romance movies or, or books, but, but you still like stories that have these sort of elements. Stories of leaving behind selfishness in favor of bravery and honor. Stories of sacrificing for the good of others. Stories of of an ethical dilemma that results in a righteous choice and outcome. Part of what we love about these stories is that the characters who make the romantic or honorable or righteous or brave decision, they appeal to our best values. And yet, we watch them so wantingly because those values often feel unattainable or unrealistic or impractical. Because in real life, what we know is that more often than not, people stay with the partner they have even if it's not a good match. Or, or people choose the job that provides the most security and, and the most future reward, even if it means losing an opportunity for love and fulfillment. Or, or, or people often choose their own safety, their own well-being, even if it's at the expense of others. And, and I'm not just talking about people, I'm talking about me and, and you. Like, this is the way that we're wired. And so when we see these stories where people make these huge decisions, we're inspired because they, they speak to us. They sing songs of a better you, a better world, a better day, something that we can get excited and hopeful about. And in today's text, we encounter the reality of these sorts of choices in a way that's far more haunting than your favorite Magrion Ryan movie. It, but in that, we have an opportunity to wrestle with even bigger questions than finding the right boyfriend or girlfriend, right? We, we have an opportunity to wrestle with questions of eternity, questions of the kingdom. And today's text begins with little children. It says, beginning in verse 13, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, little, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder him. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And so th- I mean, we could preach multiple sermons on this text alone, but, but for the sake of brevity, we're not going to get into the weeds on it. What we're going to say is that the disciples were trying to protect Jesus from all of these parents who were wanting their kids to have a moment with him, right? As Jesus' fame had spread throughout first century Israel, he had become famous, and so parents were bringing their children so that they might have a moment with this would-be Messiah or King or Savior or, or this famous teacher. And the disciples were trying to protect Jesus from this. And part of that's because children in the first century were not considered cute and adorable and fun in the ways that they are today, right? Like, it would not have been, like, bonus points for Jesus' public persona to be seen hugging and kissing children like it would for a presidential candidate in 2020, right? Like, that's just not the way it was. Children in a situation like this were unimportant and a nuisance to the Christ of God. That's what the disciples thought, because the disciples had a worldview that had been shaped by the world around them, and Jesus was indignant about it. And, and this doesn't mean that Jesus was just like slightly corrected them. Jesus was really mad. Jesus was really mad that, that his disciples would treat families and children this way. And, and that's because Jesus loves children. He loves them. And in children, he sees things that are beautiful and helpful for all people. Right? This is why at, at Sojourn Mantras we want to be a, a church family that loves and cares for children and does not get frustrated with the disruptions children create because children are a blessing and a gift from God. But, but Jesus is showing us that children also have something to teach us about what it means to belong to His kingdom. See, children are helpless and they are weak And they're fully dependent upon their father and mother for provision. Children take satisfaction in the things that are given to them, like a cardboard box, for instance. Right? Like, that's a good gift for a child. They take satisfaction in whatever it is that they're given, and they don't worry about tomorrow, because... They either haven't even considered the idea of tomorrow, or knowing about tomorrow, they fully trust that their father and mother will have a plan for them that day, that they'll be cared for that day. And and children also have a deep desire to be loved and to be secure, and therefore they stick close to mom and dad, especially when things seem tense or dangerous, and especially when those children know well that mom and dad love them. Children are a mess. We know that, right? Children are a mess. They aren't emotionally stable. They require a lot of care. And at times, they are extremely difficult testers of our patience. Can I get an amen, parents? But, but children don't pretend to have it all figured out, right? Like, what child, when their balloon pops, just pretends to play it cool? Like, that doesn't bother them. Right, like They they don't act like they have it all figured out. They don't find security in their ability to manufacture security. They, They don't find it that way. And so the kingdom of God belongs to little children and to those who are like them. Jesus goes as far as to say that the only way to enter and receive the kingdom of God is to be like a child. In other words, to be dependent and trusting and needy. So those who don't seek provision in their their own ability to provide salvation and security for themselves, those who aren't attached to the things of the world, those who who are instead attached to their heavenly father. Right, like if you observe the children in our midst, what, what you'll notice is, is if mom and dad are are not there they're a lot less concerned with the fun things around them. Like they want to be with mom and dad. And and so Jesus says that, that our attachment shouldn't be to the things of the world, but to our Heavenly Father, to the love of Jesus, to the life of the Spirit. So to receive like a child is to receive with gratitude and to receive with the simplicity of faith. So children hear the words of their fathers and they believe them. Why? Simply because their father spoke them. That's why they believed them. And our father, our heavenly father, has spoken to us. He has sent his word. John 1 tells us the word became flesh, that Jesus Christ is the word of God, the speech of God. God has sent his speech to us as the beloved eternal son, and Jesus is saying that we should receive Jesus by faith simply because God has spoken him to us. Simply because our father has said, this is my son, follow him, believe him, obey him. The kingdom of God is for those who receive this simply like children. The saints and partakers of God's kingdom listen to the word of God, they trust it and they obey it, even though, like children, they will stray from it over and over and over again. But what do children do after they stray? They return. They return to their father and mother. They return to their older brothers, their older sisters, and they re-enter into the life of the family. Why? Because children know that that is where life and love are found. They are taken into the loving arms of their father, and they receive his blessing. And so, too, is the kingdom of God. that, That when we receive the kingdom like like children that we are taken into the arms of our Heavenly Father, like the children are taken into the arms of Jesus in in Mark chapter 10, and we receive His love and His blessing. So be like a child. Jesus says they are the blessed ones. Jesus loves the little children. Now hear this. This is not a call to be immature. Jesus isn't saying the kingdom of God is, is for people who throw tantrums at every moment. No, it's a, it's a call to dependence. It, it isn't a call to disobedience or irrationality, but it's a call to faith. It's a call to being satisfied simply in being loved, being provided for, being forgiven, and being held. But to be like a child requires something of us. Adults don't naturally desire to be like children because it requires giving up all the trappings of appearances, the, the trappings of seeming like we have it together, the trappings of self-provision, it's a call to trust, but sometimes trust seems really undesirable, really uncool. Here's the account of the rich man. Directly following this account of the little children, we see this account, it says, and as he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, Sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The young man in this story desires very much to be perceived as an adult. A serious man with a serious interest. And, and he is someone that the disciples are convinced is worthy of the teacher's time, right? He's not a nuisance like those children. This is a rich man, an important man. Surely this is the kind of guy who gets the ear of a king. And, and the question he asks when he gets the ear of Jesus is, is one that all of us have considered. It's a, a good use of his time with Jesus. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life, right? Like, What better question is there to ask of one who is claiming to be the Messiah of God, right? This is a question that every human being has ever asked. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him to do the law, right? He says, you know, you're a good Jew. Obey obey the commandments. Have faith in the Lord. Do the things God has called you to. And and the man responds. He says, I've been doing that since, since my youth. i I'm a faithful law keeper. I'm a faithful temple worshiper. And, and good on him, right? The, the point of this text is not for us to look at the, the young man's claim to obedience and, and somehow decide that he's lying, right? No, like, likely he kept the law. Likely he was a faithful Jew. And, and, and yet Jesus tells him that, that he lacked one thing. He needed to sell all that he had and give it to the poor and follow Jesus. And if he did this, he would have eternal life and treasure in heaven. Now hear this. This is not a prescriptive text. The point of this text is not that every Christian throughout all of eternity will read it and then sell all of their possessions and give them to the poor. But it's not a crazy thing for Jesus to say to this rich young man. And he's not being facetious. We will see as the text continues that Jesus' invitation to this man is a loving invitation. After all, the text clearly says that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus wanted the rich young man to have the opportunity to experience and have more than he could ever experience or have based upon his wealth to taste greater joy than he could purchase, and to experience life forever with God and his kingdom, and he lacked one thing in order to do that. And lack is a really useful and ironic word that Jesus uses, right? Likely this man lacked nothing, right? He he had great possessions. There was probably never a time in his life where he was told he lacked one thing. He could purchase whatever he needed. He had security for years to come. But Jesus knew that those things were not enough. In fact, Jesus knew that those things were a hindrance to him. He was acquainted with the wisdom of Solomon, who in Ecclesiastes chapter 5 says that that those who love money will never be satisfied. That, That wealth is vapor, it's vanity. Paul tells us that the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil in 1 Timothy 6. And Jesus knew this. He knew that the man lacked freedom from the love of money. And the love of money is something totally foreign to children and the childlike. The text continues. It says, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. This is one of the more difficult passages in the entire Bible, especially for modern Western Christians, um, because Jesus, what he's saying is very plain and it's very clear. He says, it's hard for rich people to go to heaven. It's hard for rich people to receive the kingdom of Jesus. It's not just hard, it's getting a camel through the eye of a needle hard. That's really hard. And it would be easy here for us to begin demanding a systematic theology of wealth and, and money in the Bible. right? That's what we want to do. Well, let's look at the rest of the Bible. Let's see if we have to, we have to receive this teaching of Jesus. And I understand that impulse, but one thing, the Spirit has called us to this text this morning, not all the other texts in the Bible. And if you want a systematic theology of money, then I encourage you next year when we have the stewardship class to take it because there will be one provided that will give you a lot of helpful, practical wisdom in regards to how do you walk faithfully in accordance to this text. But but these words make us uncomfortable. And so if you're like me, when you read them, you either want to ignore them, brush them aside, or look for other passages in the scripture that justify wealth and riches, because newsflash, the people in this room are among the richest people who have ever walked the earth in the history of the world. And now wealth is relative to the society you live in to a degree, but, but very few of us in this congregation can comp- claim that we are not wealthy. And it's true that there are rich people in the Bible who are lauded for their faith. Faithful rich people who participate in the kingdom of God. But the Bible is also overwhelmingly clear about the dangers of riches. Especially when riches are hoarded, laid up for future security, and even more especially when riches are loved. And the reason for that is this. Wealth is probably the most tangible form of security and power. Like, wealth is probably the most tangible form of security and power that a human can experience. And it joins sex at the top of the list, also another topic that the Bible has a lot to say about, of things that promise the most pleasure. And so security and power and pleasure, these things aren't bad in and of themselves. Right. In fact, these are things that the kingdom of God promises to those who participate in it. But all of those things misappropriated or given too much prioritization in the heart or the body of a human being begin to become instruments of destruction for them and for those around them. And so Jesus warns that heaven is hard to attain for the wealthy because the wealthy are going to have an extremely hard time being childlike. The love of money leads to covetousness, which prevents sacrifice. It leads to greed, which prevents generosity. It leads to self dependence and a lack of trust in God for provision and salvation and comfort and joy because the wealthy can easily convince themselves at any moment that they can provide for themselves, protect themselves from evils in the future, purchase for themselves comforts in the present and for the wealthy, joy is always a shopping spree or a fancy meal away. The rich aren't likely to come to God with humility, desperation, and a poverty of spirit. It is possible to enter the kingdom of heaven as a wealthy person, sure. Jesus tells us that. It's possible, but only by a miraculous salvation from the love of money. Jesus tells us that we cannot serve two masters in Matthew. And those two masters, he says, are God and money. You cannot serve both God and money. To love money is to have another master, another God, another Savior. And so if you put your faith in money to save you or provide for you or to make you happy, you will never be able to trust Jesus to do those things. So is Jesus calling you this morning to sell everything you have and give to the poor? Maybe. I I can't say that he's not. I would be lying to you if I told you he was not calling you to that. I'm I'm not going to say that it's out of the realm of possibility. If you love your money and are putting your hope in it, Jesus is almost certainly calling you to rid yourself of some, if not all of it. The rich in the Bible who are faithful exhibit radical generosity and radical hospitality. So is this a giving sermon? Not necessarily, but some of you are likely going to be called to consider giving to a more sacrificial degree. Is this an evangelism sermon? No, but some of you are going to be called to spend a lot more of your monthly budget on being a host to outsiders and to your brothers and sisters in the faith than to providing for yourself comforts and joys. Is this a neighborhood parish sermon? No, but I would be hard-pressed to find a financial need that any brother or sister at Sojourn Montrose could experience that can't be met by the sacrifice and generosity of their brothers and sisters in their neighborhood parish. Some of us are going to have to read this text, reckon with it, and then look at our savings account and our retirement accounts and pray about the possibility that God is calling us to trust Him more with our future so that we can be more generous to those who are in need in the present. It's not a sermon advocating fiscal irresponsibility. We're not called to be careless or unwise with our finances, but hear this, Jesus wants your heart far more than he wants you to retire early. He he wants your heart far more than he wants you to have a nicer vehicle, a bigger house, or a better vacation. He wants your life and my life, and he wants all of it. And he wants it to be marked by childlike faith, in which we come to him daily like children, needy, trusting, and without a false sense of security, and anything other than our Father's love for us. The text goes on, it says, and they were exceedingly astonished. Right, feel good. The disciples were also astonished by this. When when I read the text, I was astonished. You're hearing it, you're probably astonished. Well, so were the disciples. So so you can feel like you're in good company there. Who can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything, and we've followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers And children and lands. He's talking about the blessings of the covenant community belonging to the church. If you leave your former life to follow Christ, you will receive a blessing hundredfold in the global, historic, and local church. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So the disciples were as shocked as you and I were by this teaching. And looking around, they said, Who can be saved? Church, it is possible with God by the death and resurrection of Jesus for camels to enter through the eye of a needle. It is possible for that to happen because it's possible with God for the dead to be raised. It's possible with God for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Two weeks ago, Jesus called us to take up our crosses, to lose our lives, to find it in Him. And then last week, he told us that if our hand caused us to sin, that we should cut it off. And, and this week he said that, if, that we need to be like children to enter the kingdom and that the rich will have a very hard time doing this. All three of these texts have one thing in common. They tell us that the cost of following Jesus is high. The cost of following Jesus is high. He, he doesn't ask for just some of our allegiance. He asks for all of it. He asks for all of our lives, our hearts, our bank accounts. He asks us to trust him like a child trusts his father, going wherever he leads. But but what we have to realize is that Jesus is asking this of us, as he was to the rich man, in love. This is a loving invitation to lose everything so that you find more. He's calling us to give up anything that would prevent us from leaning fully into him through faith. He wants us to have freedom, right? He's not calling us to poverty. He's calling us to freedom. He's calling us to true life, to true worship, to experience the fullness of his blessings. to stop relying on yourself to provide those things, but to experience greater, more heavenly things in him. And so this morning, God is almost certainly calling you to take a significant step of faith in one way or another. But he's doing so because he loves you. He loves you. He loves you enough to ask you to give up those things that seem like they're satisfying so that you can experience that those things are nothing in comparison to the treasures of knowing Christ, to being found in him. Right? That's why Paul can say that he considers everything rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Because he's experienced the fullness of God's grace. He's seen the beauty of the resurrected Lord. Jesus is calling us to give up everything in order to find even more, to find eternity, to find infinite pleasure and joy in his kingdom. But he's not calling us to something he doesn't do himself. He gave up heavenly riches and glory to be lowly on earth. He gave up the opportunity for earthly fame and wealth in order for lowly servanthood. And then he gave up his life. That we could be found in him. The text ends, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In the societal pecking order, the rich man was among the first in importance. He was among the first in deference and respect, and he left Jesus full of sorrow. But the children, they were last in the pecking order. Yet they were the ones whom Jesus held and blessed and gave the kingdom. In God's kingdom, the last are first. And so the call for us today from Christ is, is not unlike those movies that we discussed earlier. We have to see Christ and his kingdom as our one true love. The only one that will satisfy us, make us better and truly love us back in the ways that our soul desperately craves and needs. And so we have to be willing to make the radical, difficult, and sacrificial choices in order to take hold of him. For the young man in Mark 10, he needed to leave his wealth because otherwise he would never be able to cling to Christ. Consider your heart in your life this morning. What do you love that keeps you from clinging fully to the things of God, the ministry of his kingdom, and experiencing the fullness and joy of everlasting life. With that in mind, let's pray that God would reveal our hearts to us, that he would allow us, the spirit to empower us to obedience, and then we will take up the posture of children and feast at the table that our Father has prepared. Father, we love you and we love your son. We're thankful for your word. We ask that your spirit would convict and comfort us, that we would see the true beauty of your son who gave everything so that we might be loved and forgiven and find security in your kingdom, that we might participate in things far more grand and lovely than we could ever imagine or manufacture on our own. Give us the bravery to follow you the courage to live counterculturally, so that we can experience heavenly things. Give us peace deep within our souls that, that we would look at you and the pleasure of knowing you and having you and, and being with you un, unhindered and allow that to open our hands to let whatever we need to let go, go so that we can take hold of you. Pray that our congregation would be marked by radical hospitality Radical generosity, radical sacrifice, and therefore a radical movement of your kingdom in our neighborhood. It's in Jesus' name that we pray.